You're listening to West Coast Water Justice, where we talk about water in the Western United States. I'm your host, Natalie Kilmer. This episode is dedicated to Native American heritage and is focused on Native resistance, justice, and action in California. Save California Salmon is asking you to help us fight for Native communities and the environment by engaging in public comments on important salmon and land issues. There will be comment periods on the proposed sites reservoirs, the Delta Tunnels, numerous California dam removals, water flow, and climate issues over the next few months. Please stay updated with alerts on our website, californiasalmon.org. Today, our special guest is Morningstar Galley. Shimi Sunwe, my name is Morningstar Galley. I am a Jamawi band of Pitt River from Northeastern California. Pitt River tribe, our ancestral land base is encompassing of the Lassen, Modoc, Siskiyou, and Shasta County areas. It is known as the 100 Mile Square, um, which encompasses 3.4 million acres. Uh, I serve as the California Tribal and Community Liaison Coordinator on behalf of the International Indian Treaty Council, and I also am the Tribal Water Organizer for Save California Salmon. I also serve as the project director for Restoring Justice for Indigenous Peoples, and you can find out more at indigenousjustice.org. Well, thanks for being here with us today. Can you tell us a little bit about Indigenous Peoples Thanksgiving Sunrise Gathering on Alcatraz? Sure. The Indigenous Peoples Thanksgiving Sunrise Gathering was started as um, a way to honor the Alcatraz occupation of 1969 to 1971. It was a 19-month-long occupation that was held um, on the island. It was many students that were involved at the time. It was Indians of all tribes, IOAT, that helped to um, it was. It really was a student-led movement um, at the time in in 1969 that was addressing all of the ongoing issues um, that Native peoples were facing, and also the issues around a Third World Liberation Front. And this was really the genesis call for our sovereignty and self determination, and to be able to tell our own stories through our own lens and not through this white patriarchal lens. And so the Alcatraz Sunrise Gathering is a commemoration gathering of the occupiers of the island, of their families, of the legacy of indigenous resistance. Dr. Lenita Warjak states that Alcatraz is the spark that lit the flame of indigenous resistance on Alcatraz Island. And so we see that not only with the Alcatraz Island occupation, that there were a number of occupations that were birthed uh, from that. In my homeland, there was the Four Corners occupation. There was the occupation at Yakeama, the occupation at Rattlesnake Island. And then we see outside of Northern California in the continuing years, the occupation at Wounded Knee, the occupation at the BIA headquarters. Thank you for spelling that all out. So what's the significance of land back and does it coincide with Alcatraz? I would say that the land back movement is absolutely more than a hashtag, that the land back movement is 
always been an effort of returning Indigenous lands to Indigenous hands. And it's come about in many various formats. We say not only are we calling for land back, but water back, our ancestors back, that this is a movement, that we are in a time of of reclamation, we are in a time of truth telling and of healing. And so um, that healing of the land, that rematriation of the land, um, you know, of what it means to be unoccupied stolen lands. We talk about the violent exchange of Indigenous women's bodies for stolen land and the way that that still continues to operate. And so the Land Back Movement is very much addressing inequities and addressing, especially within California, that California tribes, there are 109 federally recognized tribes within California. There are over 75 tribes that are considered NFR, non-federally recognized. California is very unique in that we have 18 treaties that were never abrogated. They were never signed due to U.S. political pressure um, at the congressional level. And so California tribes were left with what was deemed homeless populations. And so we now have rancherias that were established to support the homeless Indian communities at the time. We didn't understand that the treaties, which are the supreme law of the land under the U.S. Constitution, that these treaties were never ratified. And so with that, we have a very unique situation and political climate within Oakland. So the Ohlone Bay metropolitan areas, as I'm currently in within Sacramento area, you know, the LA basin, that it is intentional and by design that the tribes here do not have land bases. It is a part of a part of their erasure. And so not only do we have tribes that are considered non-federally recognized, but we have tribal members that are disenrolled and disenfranchised. We have tribes that exist as unacknowledged. There are state recognized tribes. There are terminated tribes. It goes on in terms of how indigenous peoples have been labeled and how by design that federal recognition has worked against us. Wow, that's a lot of tribes that don't have recognition. I don't even know the difference between a reservation versus a rancheria. Yes, so we have reservations throughout California, but we also have the rancheria lands. So the rancheria lands were what were deemed and, you know, held in trust for California Indian families that were considered unhoused, that were considered homeless. And so we have a rancheria system now uh, throughout California where those lands were, were put into trust. And so they're not as large as reservation areas. A lot of them were individual or family allotments, which now constitute some tribes, you know, entire federal land base. And then reservation is like a federally assigned land. Is that the difference? Yes. So reservations are federally assigned lands that are held in trust under the Department of the Interior. And so California is really unique and being the only state that has the rancheria system. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So if you could tell us more about a land back and the goals of the movement, that would be really helpful for listeners. Sure. The land back movement, and this is not to confuse it with any, you know, nonprofit entity or enterprise, but that, you know, we 
are working towards the abolition of colonialism. We are working towards the abolition of white supremacy. We are working towards the abolition of all that is held under white patriarchal rule. And so when we're talking about land back, it's really interesting in some of these conversations, right? Because with various communities, all diverse populations, but folks will be like, yes, land back, but you don't really mean land back, do you? And we're like, that's no, that's actually what it means. It means land back and land being returned. And I, I also want to highlight that um, even with my tribe that we recently, as of this past Friday, that we had 768 acres that were returned back into tribal hands on behalf of of Pitt River Tribe. And so it's actually been pretty amazing in terms of some of the work that I was helping to coordinate on behalf of Pitt River Tribe. I worked as the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer and the Cultural Information Officer between 2012 and 2016. And so with that, um, you know, we're now seeing these efforts of of land being returned and put back into, into tribal hands. That's awesome. So any land that can be returned to Native hands is basically the goal. Absolutely. So that recognizing that this is all stolen land, recognizing that there was an exchange of Indigenous women's bodies um, for stolen land and that this happened in, in very violent ways. And so acknowledging this resource extraction that we are consistently battling. And so whether it's the protection of our sacred places, whether it's through salmon restoration efforts, whether it's through issues around water and and tribal water rights, it is returning land to its proper caretakers. It's recognizing that we are all on stolen land. I am currently a guest on uh, Nisanan, Miwok, and Mighty Lands. And I don't live within my tribal community at this time. I'm, I'm outside of the Sacramento area. And I'm here because I recognize that within the Sacramento County area, the number of meetings and consultations and just efforts around advocating for California tribes and California tribal peoples. This is where I need to be at this time in in terms of of those efforts. And so as a guest in a tribal community and on tribal lands that are not mine, I have a responsibility just as anyone does in terms of helping to be a caretaker of the land and helping to steward the land and helping to just be a good guest overall that, you know, we wouldn't walk into somebody else's home and leave it messier than we found it. And so we all have a responsibility in in terms of caretaking the land. I also want to say that it is also about normalizing the tribal place names and the areas. And so, for example, where we hold the Alcatraz Sunrise Gathering, on Alcatraz Island is known as Yalamu. Yalamu is the village site of the Ramatush Ohlone peoples. Um, if I travel to the Sacramento area, I recognize that I'm I'm here on Nisanan, Miwok, and Mighty Lands. If I travel up to my homeland, then that is known as Isawi, which is just a, a translation of Pit River land, of Indian land. And so, as I mentioned earlier, that our tribe held a ceremony on November 5th, and that 756 acres um, 
has been coordinated to be returned from PG&E as part of the, the bankruptcy settlement. And actually, there's um, an effort, this was the 756 acres, but that it's going to be a total of over 5,000 acres that will be uh, returned to the Pitt River Tribe within the next couple of years. Very cool. Say somebody has a lot of land and they are ready to give it back. If you could plug where to give the land back to, like how who they need to contact, basically. Sure. I would say it is about um, relationship building. It is about being in reciprocity with not only the land that you're on, but also the people of that land. You know, this is a time where there's a lot of land acknowledgements that are happening. And it's just so interesting because 10 years ago, just to say that the Bay Area was was a lonely land, you know, that that was met with some resistance as liberal as there's communities um, that, you know, that claim that their their politics are more liberal. And so when we first started just putting that acknowledgement out there and saying, you know, we are guests here, we ask permission to be here, we are making these offerings to to the spirits and to the ancestors of this land that we're here in a good way. And it's interesting that even land acknowledgements have been co-opted in some sense now. And the conversation needs to go beyond a land acknowledgement and to acknowledge the people that still continue to exist on the land, to acknowledge what it means to hold these resources of, of accumulated wealth on stolen land. I think there's no one fit all answer in terms of how land can be returned. But I will say that there is this effort at this time, um, especially of, of white owned land trusts and saying like, well, we put it in a land trust. So, you know, we're doing good in, in that standard. And I would just say, like, give it back to the tribe, give it back to the tribal community, give it back to the families that there's still this very paternalistic notion that, you know, tribes aren't able to steward their own lands, that they aren't able to manage their own lands. But we see what's been done um, and the harm that has been caused, I mean, we see with the California wildfires at this time and the lack of tribal communities that are not able to traditionally uh, manage their lands. And, and we used fire in that sense. And so traditional burns and traditional fire management um, that we know kept our lands extremely pristine, that kept them very well managed, um, and that we didn't have these, these outbreaks of fires at this time that we are now all, all experiencing and impacted by. How does water rights coincide with the land back and what would you like to see happen? What I would like to never see happen again is in terms of the decimation of, of our salmon populations that 98 to 90% of our salmon population was killed this year, that our salmon were massacred in terms of the water that was diverted to to grow almonds, the water that was diverted to the farmlands. And it turns into this very political issue that water is sacred to us, that our traditional teachings of water are, are ones that, you know, we all know that we need clean water in order to survive. We all know that water is, is a right. It's a human right. It's a tribal right. And so it's just really frustrating at this time because Wade Crowfoot is, is over at the UN climate conferences at this time, the natural resources secretary for the state of California. But yet he is there talking about 
how there's not enough that's being done in terms of endangered species, but yet they are here at this time participating in in the extermination and extinction of of our salmon relatives and populations. So basically what you're saying is they're talking about it at the... Um... International level and during the, the climate talks on how, you know, the, the ESA is not enough, the Endangered Species Act, but yet our salmon, which are extremely important to, to our survival here as California Native peoples, um, the salmon are to California tribes as the buffalo are to Plains tribes. And so this effort by PG&E, this effort by the state of California, um, in terms of not working for the restoration of the salmon, in terms of making political decisions where the water is diverted and there's not enough water for the salmon to be able to survive. It's very much a hypocrisy that is continuing um, and ongoing. Do you want to say anything else about land and water rights in California and beyond? Sure. I'll just share that my own involvement with the Alcatraz Sunrise Gathering has been a very personal one. It's how I received my name. It's why I continue to help organize the gatherings for both October and November, that it was in the late 1970s that Bill Wapapa, who was the founder of the Alcatraz Sunrise Gatherings, they were held in, in commemoration, and they were held in commemoration of the original um, 1969 to 1971 occupation. And Bill Wapapa founded the International Indian Treaty Council office in San Francisco. He founded the Aim for Freedom Survival School out of Oakland, California. It was also known as the Oakland Aim House. And so it's where I was born. I was born at the Oakland Haim House at a time that Highland Hospital, the local Alameda County Hospital, had the second highest infant mortality rate in the nation. It was at a time that Native women were going into Indian health service clinics for very routine operations and coming out sterilized. And so my parents, who were a member, who were members of the American Indian movement, who um lived at the AIM house in Oakland. Um, every morning, everybody would gather around a sacred fire and they would hold a sweat lodge ceremony. And so it was during my birth where I was introduced to that sacred fire in Oakland, where I was given my name of Morning Star. It was during that sunrise gathering. And so I just wanted to share that connection in terms of the commitment for the ongoing sunrise gatherings and what it means to stand in prayer and in solidarity and in resistance with indigenous peoples around the world. And so we gather the second Monday of October. That's a much smaller gathering that's very community oriented and based. And that's from anywhere from 12 to 1600 people. And then Indigenous Peoples Thanksgiving Sunrise Gathering is our larger gathering. It's held on the fourth Thursday in November. And so that one, we are anticipating between five to 6,000 people. 
Oh, wow. And then who's invited? Everyone's invited. It's open to the public. Tickets are $14. And you can find out more information on treatycouncil.org. The $14 ticket rate is a negotiated rate with the boat service through City Experiences and Alcatraz Cruises. And so if you were to purchase a regular boat tour ticket, it, you know, is two to three times that amount. And so this is an opportunity to not only gather and be in solidarity with Indigenous peoples and and hear about the different issues worldwide, but also if you would like to stay afterwards and, you know, you haven't been to The Rock and want to take a tour of it, you're able to do so. And you get to attend the event for $14. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. The event is free and it's just the the ticket price is just for the ferry ride over. Okay. And say again where people can get a ticket if they want to? There's more information available at treatycouncil.org. One of my last questions is, can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between San Francisco and the Native community? Because it's a super progressive town historically. Um, so I'm just curious what's really going on? Sure. So it was in the 1950s as part of the Relocation Act and Termination Act, where there were federal Indian laws and policies that were in place to remove Native peoples from reservations and to eradicate reservations at the time. That was the plan. And so in in very large numbers, people were bussed off of reservation lands and they were sent to metropolitan areas such as San Francisco and Oakland. And so San Francisco is one of, one of those relocation communities. And so it very much exists today in terms of being an, an extremely high rate of of Native peoples, of urban Indians. 80% of Native peoples now live off reservation and are in these urban Indian communities. And so I've been working in San Francisco since 1997, 1998. I worked for the American Indian Film Institute, worked for American Indian Contemporary Arts. Since 2008, I've worked for the International Indian Treaty Council. And so it is a really special relationship in terms of the local Native community and, you know, serving our community in in that way. And yeah, San Francisco claims to be very progressive. But again, when it comes to issues such as the San Francisco PUC, the Public Utilities Commission, they've consistently voted against um, our efforts of salmon restoration and salmon protection. They've consistently voted against California tribal water rights. And you can learn more about that at californiasalmon.org, where we have updated information on the PUC meetings and how to get more involved and, and learn more about our efforts with Save California Salmon. Okay, perfect. I just want to thank you for your time and all the hard work that you're doing. I'm kind of blown away. This is awesome. So appreciative of all of your work and this podcast. Yeah, when I heard about it, I was really grateful that this is happening and and just really excited about these conversations that are ongoing. Well, I'm so excited to be learning from you. Thank you so much for your time, Morningstar. Of course. Thank you, Natalie. Please consider making a donation or buy some gear from Save California Salmon this holiday season. On Giving Tuesday, November 30th, half of Save California Salmon donations will be going to the Grant Gilkison and Jordan Allen Endowment Fund for Native Youth. 
Both are Klamath Basin community members who recently passed away and were dedicated to supporting Karuk and Yurok Youth Water Protectors. Please donate. Our website is californiasalmon.org. All the links are in the podcast description. Thanks for your generosity. You've been listening to West Coast Water Justice. Produced by me, Natalie Kilmer. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The music is from the album Now That's What I Call Surf by Tony Bald, Adam Anigias, and Danny Snyder.